Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. Thank you for joining us this week. This is week 41, uh, the week of October the 9th, as we are reading this week from Titus chapter 1 all the way into Hebrews. We're going to be reading Titus, all of Philemon, and then we're going to begin uh, a journey into Hebrews. Um, Today, I want to focus just upon Titus and Philemon. Uh, Next week, we will really dive into Hebrews. And actually, you know, there's a Bible study class going on right now in our Sunday school hour, walking through uh, the book of Hebrews. And there is so much wonderful stuff in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be exciting uh, to read through it. Uh, uh, but, but now we want to focus on Titus and uh, Philemon. Well, last week we walked through Second uh, Timothy, and uh, we saw that Paul had written. That was really the last letter that we have of Paul, by the way, the, the second epistle, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Well, the book of Titus was actually written before Second Timothy. It may be confusing because of the way in which the books are arranged in our New Testament. We have First and Second Timothy and then Titus, but actually the way they were written was was either First Timothy or Titus, uh, were you know either one of those was first or second, and then the last one was Second Timothy, um, the last book of them of them written. So Paul is writing Titus here in the early to the mid sixties. We don't know where he's writing it from, however, but we do know where he's writing it to, because Titus has been placed upon Crete, Crete, and he's there to uh, to uh, Paul has sent Titus there has put, placed Titus there um, to put the church in order, um, to uh, set things up, um, and to uh, set the, the church in order with elders, with local uh, church leaders like that. Remember, again, as we pointed out last week, Titus and Timothy are not necessarily permanent resident pastors um, like what we have here at MMBC. They were Paul's representatives, his special helpers that he sent to put things in order. And Paul tells them in verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might appo- put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus has a, a very specific job to put things in order and to appoint elders, local church pastors, leaders, people to take care of the church. That is what he told Titus to do. Um, so also, though, however, we've, we talked about last week with uh, Timothy, but now let's also think about the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter, only, what, 25 verses. It's a very short book, um, but it's a very wonderful book. It's written by Paul to a man named Philemon. And Paul is writing this around the year 60. He's, Paul is in prison, um, but he's writing because Philemon is a man, a Christian, who has a slave, and this slave's name is Onesimus. Apparently Onesimus, who had been an unbeliever, had escaped from Philemon, had met Paul somehow in God's providence, had become a believer, actually, through Paul's influence, and now... Onesimus is coming back to coming back to uh, Philemon. So you can imagine this is a letter that 
probably, I guess, Onesimus would have been carrying um, with him. And if you're Philemon, right, and, and Onesimus is your slave, and all of a sudden he shows up at your front door again after having run away, and here he is standing with this letter from the Apostle Paul, and you know the Apostle Paul. You know about him, at least, and you know him. Uh, you know because uh, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so you get this letter. This is the letter that um, was given to Philemon. And uh, so what Paul is doing here is I steal this from, uh, an, uh, as I do with all this from a New Testament introduction book, he is encouraging Philemon to accept Onesimus as a brother and to send him back to Paul and possibly to grant him his freedom. And so we really have this wonderful theme of love and reconciliation in Jesus Christ, what the gospel does to even the most difficult of relationships, uh, master and slave. We see Paul talks about masters and slaves in uh, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians. He addresses that relationship that masters are to treat their slaves in a certain way. Slaves are to respond to their masters in a certain way. And so the gospel even gets down into the nitty-gritty relationships of how we treat each other in these most complicated, to say the least, uh, relationships of, of slave and and of master. Um, so we'll go into uh, Titus. I, got, I have one thing to read from Titus, and then I would like to read a sermon, uh, walk through a sermon of Spurgeon's on the book of Philemon with you. And like I said, we will let Hebrews lie this week. We will read chapter one this week, but then we will dive into it more uh, next week. Um, so this is from Titus chapter 1. I want to do one last thing here from uh, Spurgeon's uh, devotional Bible. And here is, uh, he talks about Titus and uh, Titus uh, from chapters 1 and chapters 2. Um, Spurgeon says this, Titus was another of Paul's sons in the faith and is spoken of by the apostle as my partner and fellow helper. Paul wrote this epistle to give him instructions how to put in order the churches of Crete to which he had been sent. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Spurgeon writes this, The gospel had been preached in Crete, and converts made, but the churches needed to be properly constituted. Churches without elders are like an army without officers. Those err greatly who despise order. Verse 6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, Spurgeon writes this, So that the church of Rome has no right to forbid ministers to marry. And the reason why Spurgeon says that is because, as we know, um, and, and we have to say some nuance here. Um, and and m- the Roman Catholic ministers and priests that we often come into contact with uh, are celibate in the sense in which they are single. They are, um, they, uh, they, to be a priest, you cannot be married. 
There is, however, the one caveat that there are certain, I think they call them rights, rights within uh, that fall under the big umbrella of the Roman Catholic Church. There are certain segments, certain rights, certain groups underneath the Roman Catholic Church that do allow priests to be married. So we want to give that quick caveat, but Spurgeon's point still remains. Um, For the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, to forbid priests to marry, they're actually violating this very scripture. Because this scripture says that pastors, elders, and we believe, of course, that the, the word of God is the final authority for how we do things in our church, that they are to uh, allowed to be married. Now, you don't have to be married to be a pastor. Obviously, you could be single and uh, live a godly life and not be uh, married and still be a pastor. But for the Church of Rome, and we would still say this is a big disagreement um, and an important one that the Word of God allows men who are married to be pastors. In fact, if the normal course of life is for people to get married, not everybody will get married, but we would safely say, I think, that 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 will be the normal course, then most, normally speaking, pastors will be married men. Um, That is just the way it is. Um, And so that's what Spurgeon is, is replying to. Verse 7, for a bishop, Spurgeon inserts here, or overseer, described in the fifth verse as an elder, uh, continuing here for verse 7, must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a, lovely, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Spurgeon writes this, See what ministers ought to be, and pray that many such may be found for our churches. That's a good prayer. Um, As pastors, I think we, we would all say we need your prayers, and we pray that you would pray for us. We ask that you would pray for us, um, that we would be not simply able to do the things you see us maybe do as teaching and preaching, but that we would be the kind of men we need to be, that we would uh, have character, godliness the way we, we should be, not simply to do the things that are maybe the public things that people think pastors do, but to be the kind of men we need to be as well, which is simply to follow Christ. So we need your prayers, and I do, pr- and we, we covet those prayers. Uh, Titus 2, beginning at verse 1, But speak thou the things which which, uh, become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity and patience. Spurgeon writes this, Aged Christians are nearer heaven than others, and should be more heavenly minded. Verse 3, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Spurgeon writes this, The young woman's first duty is at home. Verse 6, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, 
in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, Spurgeon writes, not disputing or using impertinent language. Uh, again, this uh, the verse says, not purloining, and by that Spurgeon puts, or stealing little things, whether under the name of prerequisites or otherwise, back to the verse, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Spurgeon writes, We have heard much of the peculiar people, be it ours to be peculiarly holy. So that's Titus, right? We are it talks about the elders and then talks about the kind of people that we are to be zealous, zealous uh, for good works. That's the, what we want to be as Christians, don't we? We want to be people who are uh, holy in all that we do. Well, now turning to Philemon, I want to read uh, from a sermon here, and I don't know, uh, we'll, we won't read the whole, the whole thing, but we will read uh, much of it. Um, this is a sermon called... Um, Actually, you know what? I am wrong. I am wrong. This is not from Philemon. This is from Titus. I'm sorry. Titus 2.14. Um, so, yeah, scratch that. Um, we're going to do uh, Titus 2.14, which in particular is the verse for this, which says this, who gave himself, talking about Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Spurgeon has a sermon called Christ's Marvelous Giving. He writes this, We have once more, you see, the old subject. We still have to tell the story of the love of God towards man in the person of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. When you come to your table, you find a variety there. Sometimes there is one dish upon it and sometimes another, but you are never at all surprised to find the bread there every time, and perhaps we might add that there would be a deficiency if there were not salt there every time too. So there are certain truths which cannot be repeated too often, and especially is this true of this master truth, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Why, this is the bread of life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the salt upon the table and must never be forgotten. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chief. He says, now we shall take the text and use it thus. First of all, we shall ask it some questions. Then we shall surround it with a setting of facts. And when we have done that, we will endeavor to press out of it its very soul as we draw certain inferences from it. First, then, he says, we will put the text into the witness box and ask it a few questions. 
Now, this, by the way, this is a good practice, not simply for this, but ask questions of the Bible as you read it. Ask questions to the Bible. Um, you know, why did you say that, Paul? What does Paul mean here? Well, how, how, you know, like, ask questions, and the, you'll be surprised, actually, if you, as you ask those questions of the text, um, that God will give you answers from the text again, right? Just, just being inquisitive, digging deeper into the word. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, there are only five words in the text and we will be content to let it go with four questions. Who gave himself for us? The first question we ask the text is, who is this that is spoken of? And the text gives the answer. It is the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. We had offended God. The dignity of divine justice demanded that offenses against so good and just a law as that which God had promulgated should not be allowed to go unpunished. But the attribute of justice is not the only one in the heart of God. God is love and is therefore full of mercy. Yet, nevertheless, he never permits one quality of his Godhead to triumph over another. He could not be too merciful and so become unjust. He would not permit mercy to put justice to an eclipse. The difficulty was solved thus. God himself stooped from his loftiness and veiled his glory in a garb of our inferior clay. The word, that same word without whom was not anything made that was made, became flesh and dwelt among us. And his apostles, his friends, and his enemies beheld him, the seed of the woman, but yet the son of God, very God of very God, in all the majesty of deity, and yet man of the same, of the substance of his mother, in all the weakness of our humanity. Sin being the only thing which separated us from him, he being without sin and we being full of it. It is then God who gave himself for us. It is then man who gave himself for us. It is Jesus Christ, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh and being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Therefore, we have that, right? The second question is this. The text has answered the question, who? And now, putting it in the witness box again, we ask it another question. What? What did he do? The answer is he gave himself for us. It was a gift. Christ's offering of himself for us was voluntary. He did it of his own free will. He did not die because we merited that. He should love us to death. On the contrary, we merited that he should hate us. We deserved that he should cast us from his presence obnoxious things, for we were full of sin. We were the wicked keepers of the vineyard who devoured for our own profit the fruit which belonged to the king's son. And he is that king's son whom we slew with wicked hands, ousting him out of the vineyard. But he died for us who were his enemies. Remember the words of Scripture, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good, a generous man, one might even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, or Christ died for the ungodly. He gave himself. We cannot purchase the love of God. This highest expression of divine love, the gift of his own Son, was, in the nature of things, unpurchasable. What could we have offered that God should come into this world and be found in fashion as a man and should die? 
Why, the works of all the angels in heaven put together could not have deserved one paying from Christ. Therefore, he says, we could never deserve the cross. We could never buy it. Spurgeon writes this, And the gift is so thoroughly a gift that no prep of any kind was brought to bear upon the Savior. There was no necessity that he should die except the necessity of his loving us. Ah, friends, we might have been blotted out of existence, and I do not know that there would have been any lack in God's universe if the whole race of man had disappeared. That universe is too wide and great to miss such chirping grasshoppers as we are. When one star is blotted out, it may make a little difference to our midnight sky, but to an eye that sees immensity, it can make no change. Know ye not that this little solar system, which we think so vast, and those distant fixed stars, and yon mighty masses of nebulae, if such they be, and yonder streaming comet with its stupendous walk of grandeur, all these are only like a little corner in the field of God's great works. He taketh them all up as nothing, and considereth them mighty as they be, and beyond all human conception great, to be but the small dust of the balance, which does not turn the scale. And if they were all gone tomorrow, there would be no more loss than as if a few grains of dust were thrown to the summer's wind. But God himself must stoop rather than we should die. Oh, what magnificent love. Spurgeon continues on and says here, the third question is, what did he give? who gave himself for us, and here lies the glory of the text, that he gave not merely the crowns and royalties of heaven, though it was much to leave these, to come and don the humble garb of a carpenter's son, not the songs of seraphs, not the shouts of cherubim, to us something to leave them to come and dwell amongst the groans and tears of this poor fallen world, not the grandeur of his father's court, though it was much to leave that to come and live with wild beasts and men more wild than they, to fast his forty days and then to die in ignominy and shame upon the tree. No, there is little said about all this. He gave all this, it is true, but he gave himself. Mark, brethren, what a richness there is here. It is not that he gave his righteousness, though that has become our dress, it is not even that he gave his blood, though that is the font in which we wash. It is that he gave himself, his godhood and manhood both combined. All that that word Christ means, he came to us and for us. He gave himself. Oh, that we could dive and plunge into this unfathomed sea himself. Omnipotence, omniscience, infinity, himself. He gave himself purity, love, kindness, meekness, gentleness, that wonderful compound of all perfections to make up one perfection, himself. You do not come to Christ's house and say, he gives me this house, his church to dwell in. You do not come to his table and merely say, he gives me this table to feast at, but you go farther and you take him by faith into your arms and you say, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, that you could get a hold of that sweet word, himself. It is the love of a husband to his wife, who not only gives her all that she can wish, daily food and raiment, and all the comforts that can nourish and cherish her and make her life glad, but who gives himself to her. So does Jesus. The body and soul of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and all that that means, he has been pleased to give, 
to and for his people who gave himself for us. There is another question which we shall ask the text, and that is, for whom did Christ give himself? Well, the text says, for us. There be those who say that Christ has thus given himself for every man now living, or that ever did or shall live. We are not able to subscribe to the statement, though there is a truth in it, that in a certain sense he is the Savior of all men, but then it is added, specially of them that believe. At any rate, dear hearer, let me tell thee one thing that is certain. Whether atonement may be said to be particular or general, there are none who partake in its real efficacy but certain characters, and those characters are known by certain infallible signs. You must not say that he gave himself for you unless these signs are manifest in you, and the first sign is that of simple faith in the Lord Jesus. If thou believest in him, that shall be a proof to thee that he gave himself for thee. See, if he gave himself for all men alike, then he did equally for Judas and for Peter. Care you for such love as that? He died equally for those who were then in hell as for those who were then in heaven. Care you for such a doctrine as that? For my part, I desire to have a personal, peculiar, and special interest in the precious blood of Jesus such an interest in it as shall lead me to his right hand and enable me to say, He hath washed me from my sins in his blood. Now I think we have no right to conclude that we shall have any benefit from the death of Christ unless we trust him. And if we do trust him, that trust will produce the following things. Who gave himself for us that that he might redeem us from all iniquity. We shall hate sin. We shall fight against it. We shall be delivered from it and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I have no right, therefore, to conclude that I shall be a partaker of the precious blood of Jesus unless I become in my life zealous of good works. My good works cannot save me, cannot even help to save me, but they are evidences of my being saved. And if I am not zealous for good works, I lack the evidence of salvation." And I have no right whatever to conclude that I shall receive one jot of benefit from Christ's sufferings upon the tree. Oh, my dear hearer, I would to God that thou couldst trust the man, the God who died on Calvary. I would that thou couldst trust him so that thou couldst say, He will save me. He has saved me. The gratitude which you would feel towards him would inspire you with an invincible hatred against sin. You would begin to fight against every evil way. You would conform yourselves by his grace to his law and his word, and you would become a new creature in him. May God grant that you may yet be able to say, who gave himself for me. Now he says this, he's going to put the text into a setting of facts. There was a day before all days when there was no day but the ancient of days, a time when there was no time but when eternity was all. Then God, in the eternal purpose, decreed to save his people. If we may speak so of things too mysterious for us to know them, and which we can only set forth after the manner of men, God had determined that his people should be saved, but he foresaw that they would sin. It was necessary, therefore, that the penalty due to their sins should be borne by someone. They could not be saved except a substitute were found who would bear the penalty of sin in their place instead. Where was such a substitute to be found? No angel offered. There was no angel, for God dwelt alone. And even if there had then been angels, they could never have dared to offer to sustain the fearful weight of human guilt. 
But in that solemn council chamber, when it was deliberated who should enter into bonds of suretyship to pay all the debts of the people of God, Christ came and gave himself a bondsman and a surety for all that was due from them or would be due from them to the judgment seat of God. In that day, then, he gave himself for us. But time began, and this round world had made, in the mind of God, a few revolutions. Men said the world was getting old, but to God it was but an infant. But the fullness of time was come, and suddenly, amidst the darkness of the night, there was heard sweeter singing than e'er had come from mortal lips. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, good will to men. What lit up the sky with unwanted splendor, and what had filled the air with chorales at the dead of night— See the babe upon its mother's breast, there in Bethlehem's manger. He gave himself for us. That same one who had given himself a surety has come down to earth to be a man and to give himself for us. See him, for thirty years he toils on amidst the drudgery of the carpenter's shop. What is he doing? The law needs to be fulfilled, and he gave himself for us and fulfilled the law. But now the time comes when he is 32 or 33 years old, 33 years of age, and the law demands that the penalty shall be paid. Do you see him going to meet Judas in the garden with confident but solemn step? He gave himself for us. He could with the word have driven those soldiers into hell, but they bind him. He gave himself for us. They take him before Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, and they mock at him and jeer him and pluck his cheeks and flagellate his shoulders. How is it that he will smart at this rate? How is it that he bears so passively all the insults and indignities which they heap upon him? He gave himself for us. Our sins demanded smart. He bared his back and took the smart. He have demanded, he have himself for us. He gave himself for us. But do you see that dreadful procession going through the streets of Jerusalem along the rough pavement of the Via Dolorosa? Do you see the weeping women as they mourn because of him? How is it that he is willing to be led a captive up to the hill of Calvary? Alas, they throw him on the ground. They drive, him, they drive a cursed iron through his hands and feet. They hoist him into the air. They dash the cross into its appointed place. And there he hangs, a naked spectacle of scorn and shame derided of men and mourned by angels. How is it that the Lord of glory who made all worlds and hung out the stars like lamps should now be bleeding and dying there? He gave himself for us. Can you see the streaming fountains of the four wounds in his hands and feet? Can you trace his agony as it carves lines upon his brow and all down his emaciated frame? No, you cannot see the griefs of his soul. No spirit can behold them. They were too terrible for you to know them. It seemed as though all hell were emptied into the bosom of the Son of God, and as though all the miseries of all the ages were made to meet upon him, till he bore all that incarnate God could bear, with strength enough, but none to spare. Now why is all this but that he gave himself for us, till his head hung down in death, and his arms in chill, cold death hung down by his side, and they buried the lifeless victor in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He gave himself for us. What more now remaineth? He lives again. On the third day he cometh from the tomb, and even then he still gave himself for us. Oh, yes, beloved, he has gone up on high, but he still gives himself for us. For up there he is constantly engaged in pleading the sinner's cause. 
Up yonder, amidst the glories of heaven, he has not forgotten us poor sinners who are here below. But he spreads his hands and pleads before his Father's throne and wins for us unnumbered blessings, for he gave himself for us. And I have been thinking whether I might not use the text in another way. Christ's servants wanted a subject on which to preach, and so he gave himself for us to be the constant topic of our ministry. Christ's servants wanted a sweet companion to be with them in their troubles, and he gave himself for us. Christ's people want comfort. They want spiritual food and drink, and so he gave himself for us, his flesh to be our meat and his blood to be our spiritual drink. And we expect soon to go home to the land of the hereafter, to the realms of the blessed, and what is to be our heaven? Why, our heaven will be Christ himself, for he gave himself for us. Oh, he is all that we want, all that we wish for. We cannot desire anything greater and better than to be with Christ and to have Christ, to feed upon Christ, to lie in Christ's bosom, to know the kisses of his mouth, to look at the gleamings of his loving eyes, to hear his loving words, to feel him press us to his heart and tell us that he has loved us from before the foundation of the world and given himself for us. Lastly, Spurgeon says he's going to turn the text to practical account by drawing from it a few inferences. The first inference I draw is this, that he who gave himself for his, for his people will not deny them anything. This is a sweet encouragement to you who practice the art of prayer. You know how Paul puts it, he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Christ is all. If Christ gives himself to you, he will give you your bread and your water, and he will give you a house to dwell in. If he gives you himself, he will not let you starve on the road to heaven. Jesus Christ does not give us himself and then deny us common things. O child of God, go boldly to the throne of grace. Thou hast got the major, thou shalt certainly have the minor. Thou hast the greater, thou canst not be denied the less. Now I draw another inference, namely, that if Christ has already given himself in so painful a way as I have described, since there is no need that he should suffer any more, we must believe that he is willing to give himself now unto the hearts of poor sinners. Beloved, for Christ to come to Bethlehem is a greater stoop than for him to come into your heart. Had Christ to die upon Calvary, that is all done, and he need not die again. Do you think that he who is willing to die is unwilling to apply the results of his passion? If a man leaps into the water to bring out a drowning child after he has brought the child alive on shore, if he happens to have a piece of bread in his pocket and the child needs it, do you think that he who rescued the child's life will deny that child so small a thing as a piece of bread? And come, dost thou think that, the, that Christ died on Calvary and yet will not come into thy heart if thou seekest him? Dost thou believe that he who died for sinners will ever reject the prayer of a sinner? If thou believest that thou thinkest hardly of them, of him, for his heart is very tender. He feels even a cry. So he, he continues on there, and I'll continue on here um, as, we can, as we wrap this up here. Um, he says here, uh, eventually, there are many other inferences which I might draw if I had time. But if this last one we had enough to be, be so applied to your heart as to be carried out, it will be enough. Now, do not you go and try to do good worlds in order to, works in order to merit heaven. Do not go and try to pray yourselves into heaven by the efficacy of praying. 
Remember, he gave himself for us. The old proverb is that there is nothing freer than a gift. And surely this gift of God, this eternal life, must be free. And we must have it freely or not at all. I sometimes see put up at some of our doctors that they receive gratis patients. That is the sort of patients my master receives. He receives none but those who come gratis. He never did receive anything yet, and he never will, except your love and your thanks after he has saved you. But you must come to him empty-handed. Come just as you are, and he will receive you now, and you shall live to sing to the praise and the glory of his grace, who has accepted you in the beloved, and who gave himself for us. God help you do it. Amen. That is the gospel. Yeah, I think there's enough said there. I don't, I don't have any more to add. He gave himself for us. Let that be on your mind as you read the text of Scripture, as you think about it. And um, I think that's another good reminder. The power in meditation. As you and I just take phrases of Scripture, we don't want to take them totally out of, we don't take them out of context, but also... As you, it's like a, a rag that's wet, soaking wet, and then you squeeze it, right? And you twist it, and the water comes out. And you realize there's so much more water in here. And that's what we're doing with the text of Scripture. We're squeezing it and wringing it out for all that it's worth. And think about that phrase, he gave himself for us. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, I appreciate that. We will be in the book of Hebrews next week. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, The book of Hebrews is a great book. Thank you for listening. Take care and God bless.